welcome to our first core studies course. This is part of the big plan of we're going to try to do this every week except for holidays going forward for a few years. And we're going to topics and decided to throw me to the fire first because I guess I'm the one that had more topics in my hip pocket than the other guys. But there will be a rotating series of four to six weeks of different topics and you can see that I believe on the app and on the website what the proposed plan is. So we're going to start off with the book of Ephesians and I only have seven weeks to do it so I'm already going to shorten it to Ephesians 1 through 3 because there's no way I could do Ephesians 1 through 6 in that short amount of time. Ephesians, come on, that's, that's like 24 weeks. And even the six or seven weeks we have is going to, uh, I won't get into nearly the detail I would love to. Time. So let's get started with a prayer just to focus our hearts and minds. Lord God, we, we're grateful for the opportunity to gather and hear from your word. We would ask, as the psalmist said, to open our eyes let us behold wonderful things from your word as we look into this letter, this wonderful letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. And just ask that it would, you would reveal yourself and our faith in you and our appreciation of you and our love for you would grow as we learn more about you in this wonderful book. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Ephesians. Ephesians is one of Paul's letters. Um, I remember how many he, we have preserved for us in Scripture. Is it 13, 11? I haven't counted lately, so that number is just approximate. But Ephesians is one of the more beloved ones, and there's a lot of reasons for that, because Ephesians is probably the most well-written and the most poetic and the most interesting to read, the most captivating. And the, the subject material is also quite wonderful as if you don't know already you'll discover. And that's probably why many of you are here is because you already love the book of Ephesians and you want to think about it more and study it a little deeper. And that's what I hope to do. I hope to share with you some of the wonderful things in this letter. Feel free to keep coming in. We're running out of room here. What I'll have to do is make it not worth someone's while so next week. There's actually extra chairs in the corner there. There's, and there's other seats, a couple spare ones. I know we put them in the probably the wrong spot. Let me get some of those out and then we'll meet also, there was, there was a handout. There's only 20 copies of it for now, so there may not be many left back on that table, which is going to kind of outline some of the points I'm going to make and uh, a couple other things. It's also, we have it projected up there. That's primarily so I can read my own notes, because um, that's kind of awkward to look over there and see a small font like that. 
but at least uh, did everyone get a copy? Because I can make some more. Yeah. There we go. Anybody There's one left. Do we want more? Can I grab one? I forgot to grab one. Okay. Yes, and Nate's more. coming, so we'll need one. All right. All right. Good on it. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. All right. So what I want to do is I want to basically just try to cover the first 14 verses today, and that's actually a tall order. We'll see how far we can get, and, I'm, and I'll highlight a few things. The way I'm going to cover this, there's you could look at all kinds of themes in Ephesians, but in this particular text, I believe at least the part that I want to highlight is the emphasis on the triune God and the triune God's heart to bless his people. And I believe you'll see that is very evident as we go through this. And um, I also encourage in this class that you can bring whatever version you would like. I'm not going to use ESV. I'm going to use Greek. I, I read Greek, so I, I prefer to read what Paul wrote, which is he wrote Greek. So the translation that I have is going to be a little different from ESV, and that's fine because when you study Scripture, if you really want to study it well and you don't know Greek one way to do it is to grab different versions and compare and see how similar or different they are and you'll notice that basically they all say the same thing but they highlight different things so whatever version you bring is fine I'm just gonna kind of translate from the Greek here and you have a copy of the translation that I'm gonna that's what I translated last night I might actually translate it differently as I'm talking now because when you read Greek you you're translating on the fly. But um, let's go with these verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, through the will of God to the saints or holy ones, which is what that means, to the ones who are or exist in Ephesus and the ones who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the greeting. A couple comments about the greeting. I won't spend a lot of time on the greeting because it seems rather standard fare, but Paul identifies himself as an apostle in this letter. He doesn't always do that. There's a theory behind why he says that. It's, it's, he's writing to people who may not be as familiar with him and maybe haven't, aren't really sure whether he's the real deal. So he uses the term apostle, which means sent one. Christ Jesus has sent him. And it's, it's more like a, yes, I'm an apostle. If you read other letters, you'll notice he doesn't say that all the time. He doesn't always say. Sometimes he says, I'm a slave. I'm a servant. To a, to like the Philippians, he says that. Because the Philippians know him really well. and He's got a close relationship. This particular group of readers in Ephesus, it appears like he doesn't know them as well. Therefore, he's, he's more general. So Paul, an apostle, sent a sent one, sent with this message of Christ Jesus through the will of God to the saints, or the ones who were set apart as holy ones, who dwell in Ephesus. And another way of describing these saints in Ephesus is they're faithful ones in Christ Jesus. They're two ways of describing the same group of people. All the ones that are set apart by God for him in Ephesus are also faithful to Christ Jesus. 
they go hand in hand. Holy ones are faithful ones. Truly faithful ones are also holy ones. Set apart for God, which is like a positional. They're set apart. God said, these are mine. But those people are also faithful in return to the God who set them apart. So God chose them, made them holy, and their response is, yes, Lord, we're faithful to you. Our faith is in you. So holy ones and faithful ones. Same group of people looking at it from two sides. God made them holy. They respond in faithfulness. And then the standard greeting that he shows says in all of his letters, verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The two most important things Paul says we need, and he repeats this in all of his letters, without fail, is God's grace and peace. We need his favor, his grace is his favor, his unmerited favor, favor we don't deserve, but it's, we need him to have favor upon us. But not only that, we also need to have relationship with him. That's what the peace means. Peace means that we can approach him and not fear reprisal for our wrongdoings and our sins. We need grace and we need peace. And he says this in all of his letters. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father. Our Father. He describes God as not just the sovereign one. In fact, he doesn't say that at all in here. He doesn't say he's the creator. He doesn't say he's large and in charge. He says our Father. This God that he's talking about is our Father, first and foremost. He's God, but he's our Father. If you're one of the holy ones and faithful ones. He's our Father. The next verse is going to elaborate on that. But right now, think of God as your Father first. And the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord is Jesus Christ, his Son. The, God, the Father is the Father, his Son is our Lord. Just a, a wonderful little brief greeting there that I can't spend much more time on because we have verses 3 through 14 to get to. Verses 3 through 14 are, to my knowledge, the longest sentence in the Bible. In Greek, it's all one sentence. And uh, in English, if you turned in, actually, if you look at my translation, I intentionally left periods out to try to emphasize it's one sentence, even though it's a big run-on sentence, and I would be asked to correct that if I turn that into my English teacher. You can't do that in English. But in Greek, you can just keep going and going. And Paul pretty much got going and kept going and kept going. Um, so it is one sentence. And one thing to know about English grammar, grammar of any language, is every sentence has a subject. In every subject, every sentence has a verb, a main subject and a main verb, which means that this sentence has a main subject and a main verb. <coughs> and it's probably not what you would think it is, especially when you're looking at English and you see five or six or ten sentences, because each one has their own main subject and main verb. But in Greek, the main subject of the sentence 
is right there in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The main subject of the sentence of this whole section is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The God and Father. God the Father is the subject of the sentence. Not Jesus, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This sentence is actually a revelation of God the Father to his people. This is all about God the Father. I think I have that in my notes. God is Father first. I said that already. Also, God the Father is the dramatical subject of verses 3 through 14. It's all about him. Everything else that follows in this sentence is hanging on the truth that God the Father is blessed. That's kind of weird. He's blessed. God the Father is blessed. That's the main subject and the main verb. The verb is is. God is, or God blessed be. You can, you can put a be in there. as God is this. God let him be blessed. He is blessed. It's not that let him be blessed. He is blessed. And that's, that's an interesting way to describe God. Not only is he a father, but he's blessed. As a matter of fact, you could call him the blessed one, which is what I've got in the head of my notes under God the Father, the blessed one. He is the blessed one. God the Father is the blessed one, the blessed one. And just to let you know, this word in Greek is only applied to God the Father throughout all of Scripture. It is literally a title for God. It's never applied to anyone. It's not even applied to Jesus. It's applied to God the Father, the Blessed One, which means he is, it doesn't mean that we are to bless him as so much as it means he is the one who is the source of all blessings. All blessings proceed from him first. Everything in the universe and everything in all eternity has proceeded from the Blessed One. The Blessed One is the source of all blessings. He always blesses others. No one can bless him the same way we, he blesses us. All we can do is acknowledge that he's the Blessed One and be grateful that he's the Blessed One and love him for being the blessed one and worship him as the blessed one. So when we're called to bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, basically saying, listen up. He's the blessed one. And here's why. Just stand back in awe and worship him. All blessings flow from God the Father. Now, just to undergird the point I made about the blessed one's a title, I said in my notes, look at Mark 14, 61. Someone have that, if you could read it. Look it up real fast. I don't want to shoot through the copy. It's just as a setup. This is Jesus before the Sanhedrin, the night before he dies. He kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest questioned him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? 
same order. The Blessed One. They were asking him, are you the son, the Messiah of the Blessed One? And Jesus and essentially says yes. And they tear their robes and they put them on the cross. So there you go. God the Father is the Blessed One. The Jews recognized it. They reserved the word in their scriptures for God the Father. And it's also throughout the New Testament. Only, only God the Father is the Blessed One. Now, another thing to keep in mind about this idea that God is Father, why it's first. This is just a thought that I was just made aware of in the last couple months as I was reading through this book, Delighting in the Trinity, which I strongly recommend. It will really help you delight in the Trinity. <laughs> It'll help you appreciate God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Think about this. Before there was a creation, before there was a creation, God wasn't Lord of anything because there was nothing to be Lord of. He wasn't a creator yet because he hadn't created anything. He wasn't a judge yet because there was nothing to judge. There was no evil to overcome. He was none of that. Except he was one thing. He was a father. He had a son eternally. So, from all eternity, God has been a father. Before he was a creator, before he was the Lord of creation, because there was nothing to be the Lord of, before he was a judge, before he was a king, he was a father. And that tells you a lot about him. That's who he is at his core. He's a father. <clears throat> and he expressed his love in all eternity to his son, whom Paul calls the beloved. <coughs> Down in verse 6, this is where that shows up to the praise of the glory of his grace with which he graced us in the beloved that's another title for Jesus that's a title for Jesus the beloved one so God the father had his beloved son for all eternity and he was a father blessing his son if you will and however that looks is hard to imagine because this is before anything's created God has always been a giving blessing being God the father has always been that way he spent all of the eternity loving his son through the Holy Spirit. And at some point in eternity past, God the Father decided, let's expand the family. Let's create some people to be our children. So I can love not just my son, but I can love them too. And that's what he does. In verse 4, 5, and 6. God the Father, the Blessed One, 
who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Before I move on there, if you notice, he's got the Trinity in that verse. God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing via the Holy Spirit. So all three are at work. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before he created anything, he chose others to love. And he chose them to be holy and blameless before him. In that verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Right. Does that imply that us existed before the foundation of the world? Or that he just knows that us is going to exist? He's going to create us. So no, we can't possibly have been created before we were came into existence or before Adam was created. But he had it in mind. He said, hey, guys, we're going to go... We're going to expand the family. It's not just going to be about the Son and us and our Holy Trinity. We're, we're going to expand the family. Would it imply a creation order? That's what I... A creation mean, order? Meaning that you're saying God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's creating us to be his family. That's the, the ultimate purpose there is that eternal right. perfect fellowship. Right. That the rest of, of, the, of the foundation of creation in heavenly places to right. display his glory and speak about who he is in the earth that he has made for us is for for us to be meaning a creation order the purpose of the creation and what else uh, my question is does it imply a creation order in the sense that um, he didn't give the trees or Animals, oh, a, a spirit, a purpose. Well, I mean, he, they have a purpose, and he made them in his for his glory. But right. And um, just back to Genesis, the stewardship of the earth. Maybe yes. I'm not saying well, question right. The, maybe the, I'm using it, the wrong term when I say order of creation. Not order. I don't mean chronological order. You mean like precedence of yes. certain. Well, and, and in the Genesis story, yes. the Imago Dei, as you Not mentioned, it's, it's mentioned yes. he created certain people to image him and be his children, and others, things he created, not so much, like mosquitoes. <laughs> <laughs> but he created them. And yes, there's a, a, a hierarchy in what he did, there's a purpose behind all that, and you can see some of that in Genesis. But the, the main thing, the point is, he created image bearers. He, he created people in the image of his son, who was the ultimate image of him, to basically replicate, to duplicate, to get his blessings out further. It was his desire to do that, and you actually see that in these words here. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world for us to be holy ones and blameless ones, holy set apart for him, but not only set apart for him, but blameless, perfect before him. And then verse 5, um, the in love at the end of verse 4 probably should be part of the verse 5, not part of the verse 4, because if you think about what verse 5 is saying, in love he predestined us for adoption 
through Jesus Christ for himself. In love, this is the motivation. He didn't just want to create a bunch of holy and blameless ones. He didn't want to create a bunch of perfect people who were set apart for his purposes. He wanted those people to be in his family. So in love, he adopted them. He adopted them. This is predestined. This is before the foundation of the world also. He had in his mind, I'm going to create them. They're going to be holy ones set apart for me. They're going to be blameless ones. They're going to be perfect. And they're going to be my sons and daughters. They're going to experience me as father. They're not just going to experience me as the almighty over here in the corner that we all respect. They're going to experience my love and so in response to that love they're going to love me in return they're going to want to they want to be a part of the family I'm going to love them they're going to respond in love this is uh, one of the interesting things I read in this book about the thought of if God was a a creator first not a father first if the father thing came later it's primarily about, I just want to rule people. I want some minions. Um, that's, that's the consequence. That's kind of what uh, Allah, the God of Islam, he just has minions. He doesn't love anybody. He doesn't have a relationship with them. He's just created so that they would serve him. Our God is different. He's not that way. He is a father first. He created so that we could be part of the family. Now, think about this, this illustration how do you think of God the Father? Do you think of God the Father as Father first? Or do you think of Him as Lord first? As ruler first? An illustration would be, say, think of God as a traffic cop. Traffic cops are there to push away the evil people, to protect you, to do justice. But who in their right mind would ever have a traffic cop over for dinner and want to hang out with them just because he's a traffic cop? We try to avoid traffic cops, right? <laughs> it's like, just do your thing when we need you and stay out of my life. I don't want you in my life. Right? Now, if that traffic cop is your father, it's a totally different story. If you're the son of the traffic cop, you want daddy to come home and you want to jump in his lap and you want to spend time with him and play games with him and have life with him it makes all the difference in the world what do you think of God the Father is he just a traffic cop or is he your father if he's just a traffic cop when times get rough when suffering happens and the traffic cop doesn't protect you the way you think you should your response to the traffic cop is you didn't do your job fired I want another traffic cop. Your job is to protect me. I shouldn't be suffering like this. But if he's your father and first, your response in suffering isn't, you didn't do your job, it's, daddy, help. You run to him. You don't run away from him, you run to him. I need your help. And that's, that's the way God is. That's the way he wants us to see him as a father first. Somebody we want to run to and spend time with, not somebody to stay away from, stay out of my life, and do your job. 
which is what the kind of thinking that comes when you are thinking of God as primarily a ruler and a judge and a traffic cop. So, God the Father chose us, predestined us, and he did it at the end of verse 5, according to the good pleasure of his will. He wanted to do this. He delighted to do this. He, it's his pleasure to do this. He wants adopted image bearers. He wants children. He wants to take the love that he has for his son and share it. He's a life-giving God first. First and foremost, he gives of himself, like every good father should. The well-being of everybody is his first concern, and he loves his children. So he did this according to the good pleasure of his will, and it just so happens to be the praise of his glory as well. The glory of his grace, which he has graced us in the beloved one. He brings in Jesus, the beloved one. Because that's going to be, Jesus will come into the role here in the next couple of verses. Can you flesh that out a little bit? To, to the praise of the glory of his grace. The praise of the glory of his grace. Okay, I'll try. These are rich words. To the praise, so that's our response to God. The creator's response to God is to praise him. Glory, a good way to think of glory is... It's like a spotlight on something good. So something glorious, you focus on it and you get attention and go, there it is. The word, uh, yeah, the glory. So God is glorious and what he's doing this for, one of the reasons he's doing this for, actually the ultimate reason he's doing this for is so that his glory will be made known to more people. The, the light will shine on God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit and go, wow. That's good. That's awesome. So, and he does it by giving grace. Grace to undeserving folks like you and I, like all humans who have fallen, which is everybody but Jesus Christ. Um, so, if you notice there, I, I translated it into verse 6, which he graced us, not blessed us, as ESV says. Because the word blessed is a different word than, it's not the word blessed, it's the word graced. It's not the same word that was in verse 3, blessed be God who blesses. Those are different words reserved for God the Father. He's not really, the, the intent of verse 6's verb is not that he's blessing us that way, but that he's giving us grace. He's giving us grace we don't deserve through the beloved, through the beloved one, Jesus Christ. And... Here's a little handle, too, to bring the Holy Spirit into this. The means through which God blesses people, he has two means, really. He has God the Son, and he has God the Holy Spirit. God the Son's already done his work. God the Holy Spirit is the one doing his work now. God the Son is his word. God the Spirit is his breath. Breathing out. And every time you see the word grace... This is a little game I played when I was a kid reading the Bible for the first time as a teenager. I made this observation. I think there's truth to it. I haven't heard all theologians say it much. But every time you see grace, the Holy Spirit's right there with them. Um, 
they're connected to him. God's grace can only be given through his Holy Spirit. If you've experienced God's grace, you've experienced the touch of his spirit. The two go hand in hand. So when God is gracing us with his grace, he's bestowing his breath, his Holy Spirit upon us, drawing us to him and other things. As we get to. I'm kind of going through this fast because I have a hard stop about noon, so. <laughs> Gotta catch a plane. So here we are. So the first six verses, uh, verses three through six, are, have highlighted God the Father for us, but they've also hinted at the Spirit and the Son, because He does it in the Beloved, and He graces us with the Spirit. Verse seven, eight, seven and eight, in particular are going to highlight the Son. Notice how it says, in whom, right after it says, in the Beloved in verse 6, it says, in whom we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses, according to the wealth of his grace. So he's he brings in what, what did God, the Son, the Beloved one do? Well, as my notes say, he's the Father's first love, always been a son, a beloved one. I've already talked about that. His love for his son graciously overflowed toward his lost children. So what, what this verse is implying that interestingly hasn't been mentioned yet, because in the beginning, the way he, he says it early on, he says, God chose some holy and blameless ones, and all of a sudden they need to be redeemed. And it's like, oh, what happened? There's no mention of the fall, right? It's like, hey, they're supposed to be holy and blameless, and yet they need to be forgiven? What, what, what went wrong? And, and the verse doesn't, doesn't tell us. And it doesn't mean we don't know the answer to that. We can find that later in the book of Ephesians, in chapter 2, as a matter of fact, as he'll bring that up. But remember, this, this is about God the Father and his love for us. He's not getting into the nitty-gritty details of how we screw things up. It's like, this is how God loves you. He chose you before the foundation of the world to be his son. And, oh, by the way, he sent his son to redeem you. So he's just going down the list. He's like, what, what do I need to be redeemed for? What did I do wrong? Well, I think we're taught to know that we've done something wrong. Especially if God the Son, the Beloved One, has to shed blood to redeem and to forgive. He's not going through the details here, but he just sort of hits it. Now, this word redemption, which I love is in English means something that it shouldn't to many of us because when we hear the word redemption where I hear the word redemption the most is in sporting events right announcers when uh, today's the start of the NFL so when the guy makes a boneheaded play and fumbles the ball and it ends up going for a touchdown against your team but then couple quarters later or at the very end of the game better yet the same guy makes the interception runs in and wins the game and the announcers the first thing out of their mouth is he redeemed himself right and that's not what redemption is number one rule of redemption you cannot redeem yourself you can never redeem yourself it just isn't possible at least redemption as defined in the bible and in bible times the idea that 
something that started out bad could turn out so good for the person, that's actually an idea that comes from the Bible because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. Something horrible, he, he turned into something wonderful. But that's the person who's doing the wonderful things that didn't redeem himself. Jesus redeemed them. The loved one redeemed them. So, redemption you cannot do to yourself. And redemption implies a couple things. First of all, what is redemption? Redemption is paying a ransom, literally paying a, a price to release an enslaved or an imprisoned person. Redemption means the person being redeemed is in a bad spot. He's been stolen away from his owner, and he's now a slave. Or if he's in wartime, he's been captured, and he's now a prisoner of war. He's in a bad spot. And what redemption meant back then, and what it means in Scripture when we see the word is, that the person who is not where he should be, for various reasons, it could have been his fault, it could have been someone else's fault, but he's not where he should be. He's in a, the enemy's camp, or he's a slave in another nation. He gets redeemed when his owner or his commanding general or king go to that enemy and negotiate with him and pay a ransom and get him back. That's what redemption meant when people read this. That's what redemption meant back in Bible days. You can't redeem yourself because you're in a place where you can't be redeemed. The person who owns you, to whom you belong, has to redeem you. No one else can. He has to go and make the prisoner exchange with money, usually. Sometimes with other prisoners. But that's what redemption is. It requires a ransom. So, the good news about this redemption word that we often don't think about, Jesus redeemed us. Cool. But it implies something. Not only does it imply that we were in a place where we were bad shape. We were stuck in our sins. It implies that we were owned. Before we were caught in our bad state. It implies that we belonged to someone before we were dead in our sin. Which is exactly what God the Father did in the earlier verses, remember? He chose us before the foundation of the world to be his own. We got caught in sin, and then he sends his son to redeem us and get us back where we belong. We were with him in a sense. We weren't with him in a sense because we didn't exist yet, but the idea is they're mine. I had them in mind before the creation of the world. Sin has stolen them away from the moment they were born, it turns out. But I'm going to send my son. He's going to die. That price will redeem them back, bring them back. They'll be my sons and daughters where they belong in my family. So the idea of redemption is kind of following through the theme, follows through from the earlier verses of him choosing, predestining, and adopting ahead of time. God had owned us before, before we were created. And when we found ourselves in sin, from the moment of conception, it turns out, 
were already gone. He loved us enough to send his son to redeem us and bring us back to the family. So, we have Jesus. I've said here is love. God, number three, God's lost sons are redeemed through the blood of the Son. And God's sinful sons are forgiven through that same blood. Because they're not just stolen away because somebody captured them. They, they're guilty of running away from God themselves and need to be forgiven. They've sinned against their God, not just captured, captured by the evil one. They, they're also guilty of sin. They need to be forgiven in the same blood that redeems them through the Son gives them through the Son. Also note that the verb in whom we have the redemption is a present tense verb. The previous verbs of chosen and predestined and adopted were all past tense because they were all done before the foundation of the world. Verse 7 verb is we have redemption in the present and it's ongoing redemption that we will continually need we're going to continue to sin until Jesus comes back and makes all things right. So this redemption to his blood and this forgiveness of ongoing trespasses is an ongoing blessing from God the Father through God the Son. The redemption continues because we continue to rebel. It's present tense. Verse, let's see what the next thing in my notes. The redemption of forgiveness is ongoing. Six. The next couple verses, since especially since I'm going to be running short on time. Verse 10 is, is a very lot of debate about what's going on there. It's not super clear because he's actually talking about the future. You know, so he talked about the past in verses 4, 5, and 6. The present, 7. And eight, which he made to abound towards us, which is that verse eight. It says lavish, which is a good word in ESV. I love it. Which he lavished upon us his forgiveness and his redemption is ongoing. It's, it's lavished, and it's according to. It's according to. Does it say the wealth in there? Bounced towards us. No, the wealth was a little higher, but the, it's an inexhaustible debtor. It is the wealth of his grace. The end of verse seven. So. God's got this, this riches that don't run out because he's God. And this redemption and this forgiveness just lavish, abounds towards us, and he never runs out. The wealth store never runs out. There's always forgiveness for his own. There's always redemption for his own. There's always a wealth of grace. It's the Holy Spirit, the word grace. The Holy Spirit lavishes upon us. Abounds. Abounds means more than you need. It's more grace than you even can think or imagine, as he'll, as he'll say in Ephesians 3, at the end of Ephesians 3. It's beyond your thoughts. It's way beyond. It's lavished grace, lavished forgiveness, lavished redemption. But then we got the latter part of verse 8, 9, and 10, which is starting to talk about the future. And another 
debate here. We have another in all wisdom and insight at the end of eight. Just like we had an in love at the end of four. And the in love most makes the most sense to be associated with the next verse about adoption as the motive for adoption. Well, the end wealth and in wisdom and insight makes more sense to be associated with nine and ten. God in his wisdom and his insight did something else. He made known to us um, the secret of his will, or the mystery is what most translations say, but mystery is confusing because that's not really a good description of it. He made known to us the secret of his will according to his good pleasure. Once again, this is a will that he did. He delights in, which he purposed in himself. Verse 9, and I'll read verse 10 in my translation. Regarding the plan for the fullness of the times, speaking of the future, to sum up all things in Christ, the things in the heavens, and the things upon the earth, in him. There's actually an extra in him in the Greek that doesn't show up in our translations because English is redundant to take it out. But he says it twice, talking about Jesus Christ regarding the plan for the fullness of the times, the sum of all things in Christ, the things in the heavens and the things upon the earth, in him, he says it twice. Just to say it's, there was more to the plan of Jesus coming than just redeeming and forgiving his adopted ones. He was also making us, he's actually going to, Jesus is going to rule the world, is what this is saying. In his death, burial, and resurrection, this isn't, this isn't explained in this verse, but this is part of how the theology of it works. His death, burial, and resurrection put him at the right hand of God the Father so that now he's actually the sovereign one. The Son is actually the king of the earth, even though the only ones who see it are the beloved ones, the Christians at this point. The rest of the world is clueless about this, or they reject it. But he's made known to us the truth of the fact that Jesus is the Lord of all the world, and someday everybody's going to know it because someday every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. But right now we don't see that. So what verses 9 and 10 are essentially teasing that out a little bit. And I, I don't want to get into that anymore at the moment, but just to let you know, it's one of the privileges of being one of the adopted ones is we have the knowledge that Jesus is the sovereign one, even now. Not only over us, he's actually over all the world, it's just the rest of the world doesn't know it yet. And at some point in the fullness of time, fullness of the ages, he's going to sum up all things in him. That means everything's his, and everything in heaven, and everything on earth is going to be under his feet. Not necessarily, they won't necessarily be, they'll be, they'll be bowing before him, but they won't necessarily be. In fact, they won't be if they're not in the family. They're not going to be loving him. They'll just be acknowledging him as the divine tropicop and experiencing the wrath of their wrongdoing for a long time. But that's part of this blessing, too, is that this beloved one that came is also going to be the future. He is the king now that we see. We see him as the king, but eventually everybody's going to see it and submit to it. And that's, that's the gist of what 9 and 10 is driving at without going into any more detail because I want to get to 11 and 12 and 13 and 14 quickly and briefly because they're going to start to talk um, 
about some other benefits that come through Christ and through the Holy Spirit. Verse 11 gets to another in whom, which is in whom Jesus, in whom the Son. Um, <clears throat> I think the ESV says something about we've received an inheritance. The word inheritance isn't in the original. It's actually a verb that means to have been received an allotment. This is the actual verb. So in whom also in Jesus we've been allotted what was predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will for us to be to the praise of his glory the first who hope in Christ. The allotment which has something to do with the inheritance. The ESV's not wrong in saying inheritance, but the word isn't inheritance. It's just, it's allotment. It's, it's, it's a verb that means to be given your allotment. And there's implications of this that tie back to the earlier verses, especially when he says it was chosen before predestined. The word predestined shows up here too. This allotment was predestined for us for God's purpose and his pleasure, he enjoyed doing this. This was his idea. So, a couple of notes here that are worth bringing out about this allotment. The allotment, if you know your Old Testament, in the book of Joshua, when the tribes of Israel came into Israel, left Egypt, went to the wilderness, came in, there was a promise that they were going to get land. We're going to have an allotment. And there are chapters in the book of Joshua where the detail, the allotments are handed out. The tribe of Asher is going to get this. And there's you know, the seashore and the towns and all this stuff. We have no idea what they're talking about. But it's, it's, a, it's a boundary. And it's, that's Asher's. And this is Naphtali's. And Benjamin's over here. And Simeon's over here. And Judah's over here. Twelve tribes get their allotments. And that was their inheritance. The purpose of the allotment was... It's, it's a piece of land that will stay with your family for generation to generation. It's your inheritance. It's your place of dwelling where your family can dwell securely forever and ever. And it was a promise to the tribes of Israel. And this word allotment here is alluding to that. We're supposed to think of that when God the Father has an allotment for us he literally has, as part of what he predestined, not only when he adopted us, he also wanted to give us an allotment to be a part of, be on the land where he dwells, to have you with our Father face to face forever. So the allotment ties back to that blessing of being one of the adopted ones. God the Father predestined, according to his good pleasure, to not only make us his sons and daughters, but to give us an allotment where he can dwell with us and we can dwell with him forever. And that goes on for generation to generation because the generation doesn't end in heaven. We're going to be there forever. The allotment is the place of dwelling, promised forever. And it comes with the adoption. It comes with the adoption. Go ahead. So when Jesus says he has a place for us, is that referring to this? I think so. I think that's exactly what it means. 
I go to prepare a place for you in John 14, verse 1. Yeah, I go to prepare a place for you. It's also where John 14, 1 is also where he first declares to his disciples in the upper room, my father's your father. Right there. That's the first time he says it to them. I've been talking about my father all these chapters in John. And I go to prepare a place for you so that you and I can live with our father forever. The allotment. When you talk about the allotment in the Old Testament, it reminds me uh, they did nothing. Just talk about the lavish and wealth of the grace. Yes. The passage, I can't remember exactly where it is. You might remember, but where he says, you know, he gave you vineyards that you didn't have to plant, you know, mm, houses sure. that you didn't have to build. That you had, right? That's 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 a good the idea. land was ready. It was it was prepared. Flowing with milk and honey was the term they used. Just flowing yeah. in the right. Yeah. They didn't have to build it. They just took over the cities yeah. that were already built in the land. That's the walls that they lavish. didn't have to break down, broken down for. Yeah. Right. So all those images of the Old Testament help us picture what God the Father has for us here in Ephesians. And, and Paul's referring to that when he uses this verb allotment. That, sorry, sorry to prepare for, I know you're going to hurry, I'm sorry. But that brings better language to what I was saying earlier at the beginning, before the foundation of the world, when I was talking about order of creation <coughs> or hierarchy, in the same way that he prepared this place for us now, and then sin entered. His part of his perfect plan is that he is preparing a place for us, for us where we won't, you know, because because of his work, because of his righteousness, because we belong to him, because of his power, we won't choose sin anymore. But but he already did prepare a place before too. Right. Does, does that make sense? What I'm saying? Yeah, we prepared it. Before. We predestined it, of course. Right. He had it in mind before. Yeah, but in, in reference specifically at the beginning when it said before the foundation of the world, mm -hmm. um, I predestined, chose us to him before the foundation of the world. Sorry, yes. I'm not saying it very well, it's okay. But the, the hierarchy of, he has certain image bearers yes. who are adopted as sons and daughters, who are have the privilege of being in his presence and the allotment and never having to say goodbye and always be with their Father and your Savior Jesus and the Holy Spirit and enjoy the fellowship Trinity has been enjoying for eternity. We'll be a part of that. In fact, we experience that now because that's what the next couple verses are going to say about. There's a way we kind of get this allotment ahead of time. At least a taste of it. Yeah. That's verse 13, yes? Yes, it's just time for me to close it out. I will bring it to a close, but I'll get there. The Holy Spirit, we've got, we got to talk about him. The Holy Spirit, who I already said, is the one who gives the blessings. He's the point of contact we have with the Trinity. Everything we know about God the Father and God the Son that's enlightened in our hearts was enlightened by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who's actively blessing us. Back in verse 3 when it says, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. The who has blessed person is the Holy Spirit. God the Father has thought it up. God the Son has done his bidding and gone to redeem and forgive and to become the ruler. And God the Holy Spirit is the one who blesses, dispenses, blessings, lavish 
grace. That's the Holy Spirit's role. He's out there just blessing our socks off all the time. And verse 13 and 14 tell us how. This is actually how, how this works, interestingly enough. In whom you also, having heard the word of truth, you hear the word of truth, which happens to be the gospel of your salvation, or the good news of your salvation. You hear it, and then you believe it, in whom you also believe, then you're sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, that's what he does. He gets the word to us, we hear it, and we believe it, and then he seals us, which implies, it doesn't say this here, but it implies that he stays with us, he indwells us. And, verse 14, Paul calls him, in the ESV, he calls him the guarantee. Um, the word actually is probably better translated down payment, but guarantee is cool, so I, I went with it. Because um, the down payment of this allotment, if you will, of the, all these promises, he's, we know what a down payment is if you ever bought a house, right? You can't put up the $5 million it costs to buy a house today. You, you put up a percentage of it, and that's called a down payment. And, but once you put the down payment up, you can treat the house as your own. It's pretty much yours once you pay your mortgage. It's not really yours yet, but it kind of is. Well, the Holy Spirit is presented that way by Paul. He's the down payment that all these promises that have been promised us by God the Father through God the Son are good, and they're yours, and they're yours now in, in a limited way. Not the fullness yet. The fullness will be when Jesus makes it all right. And every knee bows, every tongue confesses, and we are actually face to face. But we experience these blessings right now because the seal of the Holy Spirit is upon everyone who has heard the gospel and believed. It's ours. It belongs to us. And then one other note here to make. <laughs> if you notice through this list here, this is all about God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. There's absolutely nothing in this list that requires us to do anything until this verse. The only thing we do is believe it, receive it. It's all about God, God the Father, lavishing grace, complete the fullness of the plan that he had to have children to share his love with and to have his son ruling over all creation ultimately and that last little phrase there who is the down payment of your inheritance the guarantee of your inheritance towards it the way I word it is very different from the ESV and I, the ESV's take on this is putting emphasis on us when once again the verse is about God as you see my translation, towards the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory, is what it literally says. So this down payment is God's way of laying claim on us that the fullness is going to come at some point because my Holy Spirit 
and I and my son together because you can't separate them. We all live with these holy ones. And eventually, the full redemption of the possession will take place. The word redemption actually shows up there in the, in the Greek. I don't think it shows up in the ESV. The ESV makes it sound like uh, the purpose of the down payment is to convince us that someday we'll get it all, which is cool. It's true. It's not wrong. But the, the verse isn't really saying that. It's saying the purpose of the down payment is it, it, it does encourage us that it's going to come, but it's really God's action on us. You're mine. You're mine. You're not going anywhere. Eventually, the full possession's coming, and it's all going to be to the praise of his glory, not ours, right? The last. It, it, it's all about him. Everything, when, when it's all said and done, everybody's going to look and go, wow, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, you are phenomenal. You are amazing. You are so worth following. You are so worth trusting and putting everything living for. You're, you're, you're it. You're the, the ultimate. And this, brothers and sisters, is, is what we have if we've heard the gospel and we believe and the Holy Spirit is our seal and the Holy Spirit is our guarantee. This is true for us. This is for us to remind ourselves of and continually draw ourselves back to God when times go bad. Don't think of God, the Father, as the traffic cop. Think of him as your Father. When things don't go the way you want, when you get caught in sin, when you suffer, remind yourself of this truth. And you will persevere to the end. This is what makes us persevere. The Holy Spirit within us helping us to love and look at God as our Father and Jesus as our Savior and Brother. And it just keeps us with Him. It sustains us. It keeps us tight with God the Father knowing that ultimately we'll be with Him forever. and then I'll head out of here and hopefully next week there'll be more time for questions and things Lord God thank you thank you for being our father thank you for adopting us before the foundation of the world giving us an allotment to dwell with you forever face to face and for lavishing your gracious Holy Spirit upon us and indwelling us and enabling us to persevere and love you more day by day. Please continue to be with us, continue to bless us, and we're just grateful. In your son's name, amen.